Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. At least that's how we used to be known. But now we are He Said, She Said Razor Branding with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. That's right. For the same low, low price of free, you now get not one, but two Russos at your beck and call. Michael. It's nice to have you out front as a co-host. I'm thrilled to be here, Jackie. As always, that was delivered with a level of enthusiasm that leaves some questions in my mind. I am enthusiastic, but um, you know, like I said, we have um, we have challenges sometimes. We're a little different perspectives. I am the creative director, and you are the lead strategist, and sometimes we um, tend to rub, which I think is good because we end up coming up with uh, really good work for our clients, but. The process to get there isn't always um, lovely. Can I make an inappropriate comment? Because you just said we tend to rub and I was going to talk about how that produced four kids, but no. No. Okay. We'll be editing that later, I guess. This is, right. why, this is why I don't do this because you put me in uncomfortable situations. Um, you know, Michael, I think having you on the show is, it kind of follows that format that we talk about all the time that uh, when we were in college and, and working at restaurants, waiting tables, bartending, it feels like in some ways running this agency is very similar. And you as the chief creative officer is much like a head chef at a restaurant. You're in the back, you're doing all the work, the heavy lifting, everything rests on your shoulders. But it's nice to have you come out front and talk to the people. Um, the people want to know uh, who's making the food. And so I think it's nice to have you on the podcast kind of front and center uh, because you bring a perspective that's different than mine. And I think it adds a lot of value. Yeah, and I think there's some truth to that. I like that you gave me full credit for everything that we do. And like today, we're talking about leveraging research for audiences, right? And you know, for us, it starts with that. It, we have a, a four-part process. It's um, in, in our Razor branding. It's focus, promise, connection, harmony. Focus is, is the who. Uh, promise is the why. Connection is the what. And harmony is the where, right? So we're going to start with focus today. And that's all about getting to know your audience. And um, how do you leverage research to figure that out? And it's not always looking at just you know demographics, because sometimes you can pull up a chart with, with age and, and different things. But that doesn't tell the whole story, right? So we want psychographic. We want to dig a little deeper. We want to get to know people, what motivates them and things like that. And so that's where your, you and your team come in, providing that information and then giving us the opportunity to craft messaging that will actually inspire and motivate behavior. Right. And so, um, you know, with Jen and uh, Quad ASF, we had a really great experience working with them and we thought they would be, she would be great to talk about her experiences with research and data, which she loves and how that incorporates into finding the right messaging to get them where they need to go. Absolutely. Um, so now that you're here and we both readily admitted that you do all the work, what is my purpose? I feel like I can just kick back, relax and listen to you talk. Well, the, for the for the first time that we did this five minutes ago when I didn't hit record <laughs> and now we're doing it the second time. So obviously we're, I wondered um, if you were going to admit to that and I'm so proud of you. Yeah, we have some things to work out, but um, usually I'm driving from the back. So now I'm up in the front. So I have to think about a lot of pressure. Things. It is. It is. So all of that to say, we know you're going to love our next guest, Jen Swanson with Quad ASF. She's smart. She brings a lot of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, If you are in a not-for-profit organization with a board, if you are in a for-profit company and you've got target audiences and all of the above, I think you're going to find a takeaway that's really helpful. So without further ado, 
Please stick around and listen to Jim Swanson, Quad ASF, and the He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast. And now joining us today, Jen Swanson with A-A-A-A-S-F. Hey, Jen, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, Now, for our regular listeners, you know, we mentioned this in the intro, but I cannot emphasize enough for all of you how different our lives are now uh, because we've changed up our whole format, right? So now Michael's joining us, which means he's going to have thoughts and opinions instead of just texting me privately on the side and telling me I'm not doing a good job. Um, and we really, I think, are becoming more uh, focused in our approach. And so, Jen, one of the things you and I were talking about uh, via email yesterday and a little bit kind of off camera is how this this is going to work in terms of us better educating and informing our audience. So I thought if you wouldn't mind, start with a little intro about yourself so they understand how super smart you are and why they should listen to all of your words of wisdom. Sure. So I've been in the medical association industry for 15 years, which I can't quite believe yet. Uh, And I've been in marketing for eight and I'm the associate director of marketing at uh, AASF, which we call Quad A. And we're going to call it Quad A so that we don't have to say all of those letters. Um, And I have been with them for a little over four and a half years. And they are a great organization that is all about patient safety. When you go to the doctor and they say, hey, you have to have surgery or you need to have a procedure done. How do you know that doctor's safe? Well, we go in and actually accredit facilities to make sure that they are the safest places that they can be for you, the patient. So my job is to help facilities, plastic surgeons, dermatologists, dentists, understand that they want to pay money for us to come in and help them fix the things that are wrong. Uh, So making accreditation sexy is kind of hard, but that's my job. So, you know, as you talk about that, one of the things that comes to my mind is doesn't the government do that already? Like, isn't that already required? Don't they already have to go through all these hoops to make sure that they're clean and they're sanitary and they're board certified and they're following all these things? That would seem to me like what our government is here to protect us from, right? You would think, um, but I don't know if you watch the news or hear any of the ridiculous things going on. Our government is kind of busy and overwhelmed, I think. So we really need third parties and there's other organizations out there similar to us. We need these third parties that are not biased, that don't have skin in the game to come in and really help you identify areas of improvement, help you understand the importance of sterilization, especially in a post-COVID world now. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. Everybody's going to be focusing on sterilization, hand hygiene, but it goes beyond just the physical facility. It's making sure that your doctors and uh, dentists are board certified in their specialty, which means you're not going to be going and getting a tummy tuck from a dentist, which happens. Um, And making sure that where you're going, they understand the proper techniques for anesthesia. They have an anesthesiologist or a CRNA come in to administer that. But then it's also emergency planning, making sure they're ready for if a tornado hits or there's an active shooter drill. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Dentists are overseen by the Department of Education and not by the yes by the medical boards. Um, dentists run kind of on their own, so it's part of why we've gone into dental accreditation as well, is because that's really, really under um, 
under scrutinized. And when you see small children dying at a pediatric dental office, it's a very easy to see how things can go badly quick. I mean, I get the whole, you know, dentist joke and nobody wants to go to the dentist, et cetera. So we thought it was a good idea to put the Department of Education in charge of them. Apparently, somebody thought that was a really great idea and it hasn't changed. That that ranks right up there with the article I read about a local uh, veterinarian who was giving Botox injections uh, at parties. And I thought uh, if I was going to get Botox, I'm not sure that I would have a vet do it. And, And that's what we're really trying to help prevent is educating the patients to ask the questions so they know they're going to somebody respectable and and that's doing the correct work. So they're not ending up getting Botox at, you know, Jane down the street's party where it's actually a veterinarian. They say, oh yeah, I'm a doctor, but they didn't mention that they're taking care of your dogs and cats. Well, that's kind of um, a good segue into what we've been talking about earlier, which was, you know, leveraging research to really define your audience and get to know them. And one of the things that we really stress on it, in our process is always getting to know the audience first, you know, getting to know beyond what the, just the numbers tell you, but what makes them tick, what, what inspires them, what motivates them. Right. And you guys have a unique challenge in the fact that you really have two unique, well, you have a bunch of audiences, but in two different categories, you have the patient and you also have the facilities that, that you serve. Right. And, and both of them need to hear something different. And, and so, you know, in, and understanding that, what are some of the challenges that you find with, with, dealing with both of those different audiences are very unique. So our CEO likes to say that our patients are our customers. They're not paying the bills, but they're the ones that we are serving. They are the reason we exist. And they don't know about accreditation because like most people, you assume if you're going to a doctor, they're safe. They know what they need to do. They've got all the proper everything. I go into an office, I just assume everything's fine. It wasn't until I started working in medical associations, I realized there are C students graduating from medical school that are doctors. I do love to say even C's get degrees, but not with somebody who's got a scalpel in their hand. I feel a little differently about that. Right. And so our our job and what we're trying to really do is educate the general public about accreditation, that it exists, how to find an accredited physician or dentist or rural healthcare provider or physical therapy provider, how to find them, how to vet them. And whether they're accredited by us or not, we just want them to know they exist and where to go for the safest care. Unfortunately, our patient population is everyone from a young woman wanting to get a breast augmentation to a gentleman going in for his you know, first colonoscopy to uh, somebody's mother needing to get knee surgery. So we have a very vast audience, but then all of those provider types are also our audience because we're trying to get the facilities, the doctors to buy into accreditation because they know they're already safe, but we're having to help them understand this is really that extra A plus work that you're doing, that extra credit that you're doing to show we are the safest place you can go. You know, that guy down the street, he may charge a little bit less, but do you know he's safe? And it's really that differentiation that's helping our facilities kind of rise to the top and elevate others in the practice. We were founded by plastic surgeons when they were removed from, when they removed themselves from the hospital setting and they wanted to start practicing in the outpatient setting. 
But people were like, well, this isn't safe. This isn't a hospital. So it was really elevating their practice of care and elevating their standards and their safety to show that they were just as safe, if not safer than getting a surgery done in a hospital. Well, I guess part of the uh, part of the issue I think is interesting is that um, it's not required, right? I mean, and for the for the for a lot of uh, like for the I know for the plastic surgeons, they're required by the boards that they belong to to have some kind of certification or accreditation, right? But at the same time, generally, it's not a law, it's not a mandate, it's voluntary. So people are paying you to come in to tell them what's wrong, and so they're basically they're paying you to come in and and, and possibly even shut them down. You know, that's a that's a really interesting, you know, situation. Absolutely. And there are a few states that require accreditation for different provider types, which is really important. We wish it would be everyone. But when we come in, we you want us to find things wrong. I know that's counterintuitive, but if we don't find anything wrong, either we're not doing our job and really scrutinizing what is going on, or uh, somebody's been paid off. I I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that's happened in the good old days when it was, you know, the good old boys club and everybody knew everybody, but we're coming in and what separates us is we're really about that educational focus. We don't want to shut facilities down. We want you to be safe. We want you to be open. We want you to be taking patients. So we help you understand, Hey, this was wrong. This is how you can fix it. And then we require them to actually submit to us how they're fixing it and evidence that they did fix it. And we go in every three years in person to, to check everything top to bottom. And then in between those years, they have their own checklist that they go through to make sure they're doing everything up to par. Right. So one of the things that, that comes to mind when I think about it, you know, from a, a branding perspective, we're always focusing on the research. And as you and Michael have been talking, you know, we see the two audiences walk me through, you know, in, in the decades now that you've been in this industry, decades. Uh, walk me through how, in, how research has really helped push you in the right direction and maybe sometimes when research led you astray. Sure. So research is really only as good as your, uh, your source material. Uh, you learn that pretty early on when you're in college and it's why you don't usually want to use Wikipedia for something. Uh, but it's it's about going to the right resources, getting the right people to do the research. That's also really important. I'm not a market researcher. If my boss asked me tomorrow to do that, I could probably come up with something, but I'm not going to guarantee it's going to be worthwhile or of any value. Uh, but it's so important to make sure you you know the question you really want answered to. Because I've come across some folks who are like, oh yeah, we need to find out what our patients want. Okay, well... In what area? What what are we really asking? Or what do our members want? Well, okay. Do our members want more journal articles? Do our members want free trips to Hawaii? We have to really focus on what we can provide them in a real scenario. What's a value to their you know membership, their accreditation, to them as the provider and as the consumer. And we also have to figure out what we're going to do with the information. I've been in a couple of places where we did, you know, customer satisfaction surveys, member surveys, and then we did absolutely nothing with that data. And then the members feel like it's just lip service. You're asking us for our opinion and you're not using it to do anything. Why am I going to, why am I going to answer your question in the future? 
Right. And, and I think that's important. You know, one of the things, and I love that you kind of touched on, it's the research is only as good as the research. It's what you do with it that matters. Um, when I think about the evolution that your industry has gone through, your organization has gone through, the access that patients now have to information online, WebMD, Wikipedia, et cetera, um, I think it's almost harder now to find the right research because there's so much out there. Absolutely. And when it comes to to our accreditation, people don't even know what they don't know to ask about. So they're searching doctor near me, plastic surgeon near me, not accredited plastic surgeon in, you know, Palo Alto. Right. They're searching doctor near me. Right. And there are some websites that you can pay to be on and they list you as a highlighted provider. And that's that's fine and dandy as a marketing tool. But I, as a consumer, would assume that that means they're safe. And we have to help our patients find us and our accredited facilities and find us without knowing they're looking for us through the use of what I consider magic. Um, but, you know, ads and our website and SEO and, and things like that to help them find us without them realizing they were looking for us in that, that way. Right. right. I think that's a big thing too. You mentioned like having research and then what do you do with it? Um, I don't know how many times we've walked into a meeting when somebody pulled out several um, from a, a consultant that came in and did these huge reports for them. And they're like, Oh, well that was done three years ago. What'd you do with it? Well, nothing yet. We're still weeding through it. And it's so hard when you go to like old school marketing and they do the SWOT analysis and all these different things. And it's like, just, it's a lot of words on a page. And it's like, how do you take that and generate messaging out of it? How do you connect with the consumer there? And that's where, you know, really try to focus on like we do with um, psychographics and, and digging into what, you know, it may be a nurse in Iowa that's 35 to four years old, but what is she like? What, what, what kind of person is she? What, what's going to motivate her to do something? Or is she, is she really, you know, um, detail oriented? What is her, you know, does she, does she, is she overwork? Does she need somebody to just help her? I mean, we need to find those things out. And when you do, you can, you can easily connect with them on an emotional level beyond just what the numbers say. Absolutely. And I think that's really important, especially for us, because we've got so many different types of accredited facilities. We've got plastic surgeons in New York and California, and we've got head nurses in rural Arkansas. And we don't want to speak to them the same way because they're two very different people and their values and their needs are very different. We can service both of them and make them both as as safe as possible, but it's going to take a little different approach to get to both of them. For sure. Which makes it full circle all the way back to sometimes you need the research to really know them, know their pain points, know the challenges they face. And you can't just spend all your time talking about you. Absolutely. And it's, it's even as funny as, you know, going to a, a conference for rural healthcare professionals and they're wearing, you know, Walmart khakis and a, a you know, a blouse. So I'm not wearing a, a polished three-piece suit to that conference talking fancy. I'm speaking like myself, dressing like I would for the office. But when you're going to the plastic surgery convention and everybody's wearing those red heeled shoes, I feel a little out of place. Those shoes are probably more than my uh, mortgage. So I don't have any of those, but I try to look as uh, fashion forward and presentable as possible. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't have any of the red heeled shoes in my closet either. 
Well, and they had, um, you talked earlier about, you know, accreditation not being very sexy. And I'll be honest, we, we, we did some work with you guys and we um, started learning about you. And, and that was my first instinct, too. It was like, oh, this should be fun. But, you know, the more the more we got into it, though, just like with any project, you know, you, you get to the heart of the matter. You, you get really start digging deep. And and the emotional side of it was there. We just had to find it. And um, after talking to your board and your team and started realizing there were some really smart people over there. And um, this was run by like we met. Um, Dr. Fuad, I believe. Is that right? Dr. Fuad Nahaya. Yes. Who, like, from what I understand, like wrote the book on plastic surgery. Like he is like renowned worldwide. Right. And, and he was the nicest, most, uh, you know, authoritative man as, as he kind of told us about everything that was going on and, and why he's, why he's involved basically volunteering for this, this organization, you know, it's a nonprofit and, and, and why it's a passion for him. And everyone we talked to all had that same passion and it was all about patient safety. It was all about that. And it wasn't that no one, no one deterred from that. And it wasn't like anybody had this prompt or this thing, but they, that's why they were doing it. And that's why, you know, what the goal is. And so that's the emotional tie-in is that, you know, there is a purpose behind everything that you're doing. And there is a reason it's not just, for this or for that, but it's to keep people safe. And they've seen the, the bad side of it when it's not done the right way. Yeah. And it's funny because I stumbled into the association world through customer service being straight out of college, but I've purposefully chosen to stay in medical associations because at the end of the day, I'm helping someone help someone. They all have really important missions and Quade's mission is so vital because it touches every single person. Every single person in the world at some point will need some sort of procedure or surgery or something that will be affected by, you know, somebody being accredited or not. And every person that works with us, volunteers for us, has interacted with us, our surveyors, our consultants, they all truly believe in our mission and they're all there to help make us better. You know, it doesn't mean we always agree 100% on the ways to get there, but everyone believes in our mission and that we're all going the same direction. And I think people like when they go into outpatient surgeries, it's so commonplace now, like I'm going in, I'll be home this afternoon, no big deal. And then you hear a story about they didn't come home that day. And it's just gut wrenching, like, oh, they came in for this procedure. And it was something so minor that's done a 1000 times. And all of a sudden, something went wrong. And, and that's terrifying, you know, and I think we don't think about that enough. And we don't we don't put our safety measures in place enough to ask those questions and say, all it takes is to say, hey, is this right? Have you guys done all the legwork? People may be afraid to even ask those questions, but they need to be because it's important. Absolutely. And then you've got the rise in medical tourism over the last decade where, you know, somebody is going to another country to get something done cheaper. Okay, great. Cheaper. But when it's your life, you know, you've got young women dying from plastic surgery that went wrong or they're going for mm -hmm. dental care, not realizing that we do accredit facilities internationally as well to ensure that they're up to our standards. And cheaper isn't always better when it comes to, you know, your life, medical procedures, things like that. It's it's very scary that I think I do more research before I buy a phone than some people do before they have surgery. Right. Right. Isn't that crazy? You know, I think about the the work you do and I compare it to the health department, for example, that reviews restaurants and you put the great big grade right outside the door. And so as I'm walking down the street, I'm thinking, do I want to eat at an A place or an F place? I mean, I want to go to an A place. And yet we're going to go allow ourselves to be put under anesthesia, tools, cleanliness. We've all heard the horror stories. I just feel like this is the first stop anyone should go to in doing their research is checking out the grade, right? 
Absolutely. And we don't have any B students. Everyone has to be 100% compliant and we help them get there, but they then have to maintain that 100% compliance. And it's not, you know, five, six things. They're going through hundreds of things that we're checking these standards to make sure everything from, you know, there's proper ventilation and fire extinguishers to the way they sanitize and autoclave things. It's, it's a very thorough. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I do feel like just kind of circling back to, to research, the research that you do on your target audience, uh, the research that uh, patients should do on facilities, there's almost a gap in there in terms of how people research. And, and we referenced it. But WebMD, how much has that just become a thorn in the side of everyone in medical? And I'm picking on them specifically. What I mean in general, though, is um, what, what people say when they say, I've been doing my research. And I think, were you in a lab? Did you conduct? Well, how, how many years of research have you done? No, no, no. What you're doing is me search. You're going on a search engine to find something that validates what you already think and feel. You're not doing research. It's me search, right? Absolutely. It's it's all about the power of Google or or Bing or, you know, whatever it is that you're using. Right. And it's it's like everything. You're also being fed through algorithms information that the all knowing is presenting to you. So if you're already talking about having a goiter, there's chances that your algorithms are going to bring some things up when you search about, you know, a lump in your neck being a goiter. And I think people also forget about that is that, you know, there are other things that play, not just how, what you're searching by word. It's, it's far beyond that in ways that I think people don't understand or even realize. What, a, what just a little pause in the program. Let me just say the person that just talked about the use of MDD, Jackie Russo has seen every episode of Grey's Anatomy and feels like she could probably ventilate someone if it came to it. I mean, you know, she's seen it. CBC Kim Seven with the best of them, Michael. Uh, between that's- ER and Grey's Anatomy, I also feel that way. <laughs> ER. Okay. So thank you for bringing that up, Jen. I think it's very important <laughs> for the story. My medical training dates back decades. Because I watched every episode of ER and then 18 years of Grey's Anatomy, Michael. I am at this point almost board certified. I am re-watching ER because I started watching it in fourth grade, you know, when it first came out. And I'm almost done with it. But yes, I feel like I could probably put in a chest tube. Absolutely. A, a trach out in the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm telling you. See, Would I be accredited? No, but I could probably do it. Yeah. But you know what you can do is, you know, exactly the right people that you want to have actually do it for you because you know who has been accredited and reviewed and really does their job the right way. Absolutely. And even when I'm at, you know, my 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 primary care doctor's office and they ask what I did when I started going there and they're like, oh, and the shift in the way they talked to me and the questions Mm -hmm. they asked was (laughs) very different, knowing that I'm medical adjacent so like i know what's going on kind of and i know the right questions to kind of ask right was very different than the questions they asked even my husband who's seeing the same physician right 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 no absolutely absolutely um so let's talk about because you you did kind of and i don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the other organizations that provide uh similar services at least similar in the minds of Outsiders, obviously, you know how much better uh, your process is than theirs. But 
How challenging is that? Because it's almost you've got this two-step, right? First, you've got to educate people on the fact that they need to go to a place that has been reviewed, accredited, and maintained their certifications. Then you also have to deal with the level of there are other organizations that do a light version of what you do. How do you weigh those equal challenges? Well, and I think the even bigger challenge is that everyone that's graduated from medical school knows of one of our other competitors because they've had to deal with them personally at some point. So it's it's helping them understand that it's not one size fits all. We're the only one that really requires that 100% compliance. We make sure they're evidencing, providing evidence of that compliance. And we're the only ones that require that board specialty and certification in the area that they're practicing. So we're not accrediting a facility where a dermatologist is doing tummy tucks. It is a board certified plastic surgeon doing plastic surgery procedures. Word to the wise, if you see somebody saying they're a cosmetic surgeon, they are not a plastic surgeon. Ask to see their board's specialty certificate. They are not a plastic surgeon if they are saying they're a cosmetic surgeon. Right. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, and this goes back to the the trickiness of certifications and research, uh, the vet that I spoke of earlier that was doing uh, fillers and, and uh, injections also apparently started doing some liposuction. Uh, I am not a patient of his, let's just be clear, nor are any of our pets, uh, for the record. He's in a, a, a town adjacent to ours. And um, one of the things that someone said in reading the article is like, I don't understand he's board certified. I'm like, he's board certified in something. In this case, he's board certified in veterinary medicine. Yes. So it's like people don't even, they apparently don't watch enough Gray's Anatomy and ER episodes to realize you're board certified in thoracic surgery um, or in a specialty. And so it seems like there's a dot, dot, dot that gets left off sometimes do you think that's just from the proliferation of medical research, WebMD, TV shows, Grey's Anatomy? And so we've stopped asking enough questions. And because I feel like the, the consumer 30 years ago came in with a list of questions and needed to make sure that they had their facts straight. And now the consumer's like, yeah, I looked you up on Google. I'm fine. I think it's uh, that false sense of security, you know, back when my mom was first going to, you know, an OBGYN, she had two options. She couldn't look it up on, on the internet. So she assumed her doctor was telling her the right one to go to. So she brought her own questions to kind of figure out which one would be better for her. But now everyone has this whole wide world of information at their fingertips. But do health grades tell you what what's really going on with that doctor because that doctor can edit that page. I could probably go in and edit that doctor's health page. Uh, you've got, you've got all of these things, but it's really that false sense of security that your research is really giving you the answers you need just because it's there doesn't mean it's good. So I have to go and dig deeper and go to an authority on, you know, that doctor, that facility, that specialty, that practice do I want to go to a head and neck specialist if I need hand surgery to, you know, restore the function in my fingers? Probably not. Are they a great doctor? Probably. But I really want somebody that's going to be able to, you know, help me maintain grip strength. Right. Right, right, right. Well, and I think another just a caveat on the research functionality is 
I, as an individual human person, now have a voice and an audience as big or bigger than most community-based television networks. My local CBS affiliate, ABC affiliate, NBC affiliate, I can reach as many or more people uh, as they can every day. And so when I put out my thoughts and opinions, because I've got this big audience, which is not big, relatively speaking, it's just everybody has a big audience now. Um, To me, that feels like it diminishes the value of real expertise when non-experts have a louder megaphone than actual experts. Well, there's that. And then there's also, you get sponsored advertisements on every social media platform. And we've come to this point where I'm going to go to two websites. I'm going to automatically assume the website that's prettier means that doctor is better just because the website looks nicer than this one. And the website that doesn't look as nice, maybe the accredited provider, but I've got already, I've got a bias that prettier and fancier is better. Right. And with no way to validate that, I, I could end up being, you know, disfigured or dead. Right. Right. Or all your teeth could fall out. Yeah. That we're it's not as bad as disfigured and dead, but I, I, I do like my uh, chompers and want to keep them as long as possible as well as pearly and white. Um, and I did a lot of research on my dentist, by the way, uh, because I don't really, I know no one really likes going, but there is some concern and some anxiety there. And so I wanted somebody who was, particularly good about that. And, um, and so asked other people's opinions, looked around and felt really good about it. Well, that was fine until I realized it's not actually the dentist, right? That you see it's the hygienist and those rotate out on a regular basis. So even when you do research, it's only valid for this one moment in time, which is why an organization to me, like Quad ASF becomes so important because it's an ongoing review, not a slice of the timeline. Absolutely. I mean, we are there in person every three years and we differentiate ourselves in another way. Well, the other accreditation organizations, anytime there's a death, it has to be reported to your accreditation organization. Whether the person got hit by a car leaving the facility and it had nothing to do with the surgery or if something happened while they were there, they have to report it. They have to go into all of the specifics for the case and what happened and the outcomes. That way we can review if it was something that they did or if it was, you know, unfortunately, sometimes things happen. But we also require our facilities to submit random case data once a month so that we can see what kinds of procedures they're doing regularly, what kinds of anesthesia they're doing, what kinds of what kinds of outcomes they're having. But then we also require any kind of bad outcome. If you get a infection, if you, you know faint outside of the emergency room, we require all of those for 30 days. So we can really track what's going on in our facilities. And then if we've got a concern, we go back out to that facility and do a survey to make sure that something hasn't slipped in between, you know, the last surveys that we've done. Right. Um, I think just for the uh, regular person, when they hear the word survey, they may be thinking, like when Delta Airlines sends me five questions in an email after my flight to make sure it's good. Do you want to elaborate on what survey means to you? Yeah. So we actually send out a person that we have hired as, as a contractor, a surveyor, and they are a medical professional in a like field. So we send a plastic surgeon to a plastic surgery 
office and they come with a 300 point inspection, kind of like the mechanic does when they do like the eight point inspection, but it's hundreds of pages that they go through and they check off each item. They check your medication to make sure nothing's expired. They check everything and they can't leave the facility until they have checked off every box, whether it was appropriately done and compliant or if there were an, there was an issue that they have to fix. Yeah. See, um, I think um, for most mechanics, it's like an eight or 16 point inspection, 300 points for the people who are not great at math is a lot more than a lot. A lot. If there's an exponential factor. They're yeah. there at, at the very least four hours at every right. facility inspecting it. I was, um, hey, Jen, a little turn on that. Um, earlier, you mentioned about um, the, the fact that you guys are international and in, in your in your accreditations. What is that like as far as audiences and having to shift your messaging when you start to leave? When you go to South America, when you go to uh, Middle East or, or Europe or even in, into the, the Far East or Asia. What is that like um, having to change your, is there, is there, do you have to change things um, depending on who you're talking to? Absolutely. It's like any other you know, messaging group, um, the Dubai healthcare authority in, in like the UAE mandated accreditation in 2019. And we were one of four that were approved. So in like three months, we had to create messaging, send our CEO over there and start getting accredited facilities in very, very little time. We all wanted to pull our hair out, but we made it happen. So they have one very specific set of messaging because they're required to do it. They're a very different type of uh, interactions with each other, very professional. In South America, it may be different messaging. And we have one of our board members that's in Costa Rica, who's very familiar with Latin America and South America's kind of niche and their trends and what they need and what's going to really work for messaging there, because it may be more about the community and less about safety. So we have to help them understand that safety is first, but how they communicate it to their folks is a little bit different. I, uh, I was actually surprised that Michael let us go as long as he did, um, because he loves to jump in when he feels like, you know, I'm not staying on track with what he wants to be asking. I got to stay on the plan. So that was very nice of him. I mean, he let us go like 15 minutes there for a little run. Yes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's killing him. It's killing him. Um, okay. So let's talk just um, real quick. I want to kind of touch on organizations that are governed by a board. And you've alluded to a number of the board members. And I know you have a unbelievably highly respected. A group of board members. Um, and so whether an organization is governed by a C-suite um, or a, a group of, of uh, board members, at the end of the day, there's this collective committee. How do you handle, um, what are your recommendations, best practices for nurturing that relationship, keeping them informed, uh, making sure they're happy, and yet still achieving all of the things you've got on your list you got to do? I will start with every board is different. I have worked with hospice and palliative medicine doctors and plastic surgeons, and they are very, very different types of people, all very passionate about what they do and very, very knowledgeable. That's why they're in the board. That's why they're, you know, those C-level folks, because they, they know their stuff. I am a data person. I like to bring 
data when I go and suggest trying something new. I'm also kind of risk adverse. So I like to see things that have happened that have had good results, high reward, low risk, say, here's what I'm, I'm thinking. This is where it's been done. This is where I think it would work. This is how it would work. And then as a marketer, I have to not be afraid to try something. At the end of the day, if an email goes out and something's wrong, nobody's dead. I try to remind myself of that when, you know, inevitably something happens. But it's about maintaining your truthfulness with your board. If you mess up on something, I sent an email. It had the wrong date. I sent out another one rectifying the situation. You know, it's about being respectful, being truthful, helping them understand that you're going to fix your mistakes if there are some. And at the end of the day, they want everyone to succeed and do well. They want the organization to be the best it can be. So they're going to understand, hey, I was, you know, a medical student at one point. I was, you know, a young professional at one point. Everybody has those kinds of things happen. And good leaders help everyone grow and they understand that we're all as good as the group. It's not, you know, me, me, me. So I'm trying to elevate and educate, you know, people that work under me, people that work laterally from me and help them understand marketing best practices, why we're doing things. I'm not just saying, no, we're not sending out an email with a 72 character URL in it. I'm saying, this is why. And I think the board members have been a little bit more hesitant because they don't know. They are wonderful plastic surgeons, anesthesiologists, whatever they are, but they don't know why we don't send an email with a URL in it. They're like, well, I can't find the email link. I'm like, well, it's in blue and it's underlined. They're like, but it's so much easier if you just have the link. And I'm like, well, we can't do that anymore. And this is why. And then they understand. Right. Well, and and I think you make the valid point. It is Every board is going to be different, but there are some best practices. And I think when people can follow those best practices, whether they're dealing with internal communications, board communications, external stakeholder communications, at the end of the day, being proactive, being honest, um, making sure you're providing the right information at the right time, you know, you're kind of doing what you're supposed to do. That's what people need. And I think that's what becomes um, so important to the success of the relationship. Um, I'm just going to get off uh, track just for a second, but you're smart. And so I feel like you're going to have a good answer for this crisis communications. How much thought and time and consideration do you put in to planning ahead for the crises that might occur, especially with the challenging nature of the work that you do? So I think everybody remembers when Joan Rivers died. I I was not at Quad A at that point, but that was a huge, huge controversy. She died, you know, while seeing someone under sedation, Michael Jackson. I happened to be at a hospice and palliative medicine organization when the death panels came out with uh, Sarah Palin and saying, we're just putting all of our old people on an ice float and pushing them out to sea. So it's one of those things that everybody needs to understand that there's going to be something that happens that shakes up your entire world. But you have to know how we are going to handle it, who's going to do what, who's going to be the spokesperson, because I don't want all 15 members of my board speaking on the on the issue. We want everyone to go to one person, have a very clear, concise statement on what happened, if they you know, were accredited by us or not. There are certain things that we can say. And then we also know that at some point, we're going to have lawyers, we're going to have you know the Department of Health, we're going to have 
CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services coming to us to ask questions. So we have to be very specific on what we can say, who we can say it to, how we want to say it. And then also the messaging, because we have those practitioners that are in our accredited facilities and we have the patients and we don't want the patients to say, oh my God, this young lady died at a plastic surgery clinic. Now all plastic surgery clinics aren't safe. We want to be able to help reinforce what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're trying to make the world a safer place for them while acknowledging that something happened. Right, right. No, and I think I think those words of wisdom are valuable no matter what size organization you're in and what level you're at. There are just some some rules, you know, some best practice guidelines. And if people don't have that in mind, that's when the crisis happens. Um, the crisis isn't how you respond. Um, and so if you're planned, there's never a crisis. If you have a proactive plan, then you can handle every situation and keep the fallout to a minimum. If you aren't prepared, then every situation becomes a crisis. Absolutely. And then, you know, you're a bunch of chickens running around with no heads. Right, right. And it makes every bad situation so much worse. And you lose credibility as an organization. Absolutely. The longer it takes you to respond to a crisis, it, it's kind of like a missing person. The longer it goes, the less chance you have to kind of recoup your your reputation. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, you know, I, I run through the, the list of questions and I love to see where the conversation takes us. I always feel like I'm missing something. So tell me the thing that I should have asked, um, but I didn't. Oh, there's no way we were that thorough. There's gotta be something you're like, oh, I wanted to talk about this, but nobody asked me. Is it perhaps about your career as a karaoke singer? Is it your side hustle as a boxer trainer? Um, uh, so in my personal life, my husband and I have a nonprofit about education and conservation regarding animals and wildlife, especially when it comes to zoos. And most people don't know this, but zoos actually have an accreditation organization that governs really? what happens at zoos, much like we do for medical facilities. So when you see those roadside zoos, probably not following best practices, probably not accredited, but zoos that are accredited, which is most major zoos in the big cities, they have a very specific set of guidelines related to the size of enclosures, enrichment, nutrition, all kinds of things. So if you're at a zoo that had elephants and their elephant died and now they don't have elephants, it's probably because they don't have room to have elephants right now. Wow. So I did not know that about you or um, your your nonprofit work, but I love it. And so we have so many more things to talk about that later in our um, off-camera life. Uh, but I am curious to know if you are familiar with the Tiger Truck Stop here in Louisiana that cannot be referred to as a zoo, uh, but roadside attraction would be the correct terminology. Um, and then they had to give up their tiger. And then they got a camel and then the lady from Florida who was passing through stopped to get gas and dropped something in the cage. And stop, so stop, I'm stopping you right now. Just don't finish. But I have to finish. <laughs> she climbed in the cage to get the thing out and the camel sat on her and she couldn't get out from underneath the camel. So she bit it so it would move. I'm not familiar with that. I'm going to have to look I'm gonna it send up. You some articles. I'm going to send you some articles on the lady who bought the bit the camel in the balls. I'm going to send you some articles. 
please do. They don't have their camel anymore either. I think they finally have been shut down. I'm pretty sure they're not accredited. I would just no that's, that's a, Ro- that's a roadside shot. roadside attractions like that are not accredited. No, Michael, they're definitely not accredited. I don't even think they're legal to have a pet, much less a camel or a tiger. I mean, well, so that. some states in like Ohio when they had the zoo that all the stuff it wasn't even a zoo when the guy's like whole menagerie got out when he shot himself. Some states you can have whatever wild animals you want, exotic or not. Yeah, because there's a guy in Texas who had a tiger living in his backyard. Yep. I was just right around the Tiger King thing, and I thought, well, that's not a good idea. Yep. Hey, Carol. Sorry, Michael. Husband. Michael's like, this is it. This is the one and only time we're going to do this together. We're done. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could talk about this more, even longer than I talk about what I currently do. Right. Right. So it's best pulling to the end. And that's why I asked because I want to give people the chance. Like I love that and I did not know that. And so now we have a whole other thing to talk about. So that's awesome. Jen Swanson, thank you for your time and your knowledge and your expertise and suffering the first of the two of us doing this together. You have been a gem as always. Thank you guys all so much. I'm so happy we found you. So are we. Michael, did you want to touch on that at all? Is that are you good? Um, you well, no, you, you know, yeah, we're just at a little addendum here real quick. Um, I mean, because we talked about earlier, like, you know, when we first started, we kind of kept our identities out of it. You know, um, it was like Jackie was at the front, but it, I didn't want us to be a mom and pop because we were from Lafayette and we had a really hard time getting traction, even though we had experience in other markets. Um, sometimes a, a, a bigger group like yourself would look for the bigger, you know, the prettier girl in the room, you know, if you would, or the, um, the, you know, the, the shiny agency that's going to wind and dine you and that kind of thing. But, but you guys had met Jackie and Slade and, and Molly and our team. And I know you had several conversations in the process, but you ended up really choosing a, a smaller mid-sized agency um, in a small market to do work with you. And um, what was your decision-making process? Like what, why, why did you choose that versus maybe, um, you know, a big city, group. So I am from Wisconsin. I am Midwestern through and through. So relationships and people are really important to me. And we interviewed people everywhere, big fancy groups, groups smaller than you guys. And all of them, I was just kind of like, they could probably do it, but do I want to work with them? And they were, you know, everyone's lovely, but I, I didn't make any kind of connection with any group like I did with, you know, Jackie and Molly and Slade. And we had many, many, many interviews. Uh, Sean and I, my colleague, we dated for like six months, uh, 12 different agencies before I presented my thoughts to our C-suite and then eventually our board. And the board wanted to meet, you know, a couple of the outstanding groups. And luckily at the end of the day, I was given leeway because everyone impressed them. I was given the leeway to choose who I wanted, which very obviously was you guys. And everyone was blown away by our Razor branding presentation. I couldn't have been happier. Um, I don't know, Jackie, if Michael told you about the stress dream I had where a bear came in and was eating people. No, Uh, It was not necessary. (laughs) Wait, did the bear come into the Zoom call like the bear was in the Zoom with us? Well, so some of us were on Zoom and some of us were in person in this really weird districty warehouse and a bear came in and started eating people. Uh, And that was just my own stress dream. Not that I was actually worried about it, but that's my own internal do you think the bear broke out of a roadside attraction that was not certified? Very clearly. I feel like that's a full circle moment yes. here. This is awesome, Jen. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure 
Uh, we look forward to continuing to work with you for the next few decades and uh, having you back on the podcast again um, as time goes on, because it's always good to hear your perspective. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well,